0: Everyone, this is chrisa and welcome back to the energy hall of fame your online hub for getting to know better the world's most influential energy executives tonight's theme is fireside chat and our guest of honor is no other but max torres former director at repsol Ecopetrol, patrol currently leading plata energy latin america's major oil and gas booty consultancy max is undoubtedly one of the world's most experienced oil man, whom I had the pleasure to meet almost 10 years ago in Madrid, and I do consider him as one of my mentors, friend, and among the industry's most iconic figures. During today's podcast, we will be discussing about his experience in the industry, his thoughts on the current situation, as well as that of Latin America's. Of course, with us today is my co-hostess, Madalena
1: Albergaria, our head of institutional partnerships. Welcome, Madalena. Thank you, Krisa. I hope you're great. And uh, welcome, Max. Thank you for joining us today. How is everything?
2: Everything fine. How are you doing, girls? I'm doing all right.
1: All good, all fantastic. So um, I'm not going to take way longer than this because I believe we have a lot to discuss. Max, Krista just introduced you, but of course, we need your own words to start with. And uh, it would be great to have your biggest achievements. And what would you like to share first with
2: us? Thank you for having me and thank you for the honor, you know, to be part of this project. Uh, I can say that I started, you know, very young in the industry. I went to school in Argentina, and then I did a, a master's in, yeah, here in, in the U.S., you know, in Georgia State University. From there, you know, I started uh, in some Argentinian companies. Uh, I worked for a company called Astra, then another company called Bridas. Uh, Bridas is part of the Pan-American Consortium right now with the Chinese MVP. And I think one of my biggest achievements uh been with, with them. They had that. This was about 1991, 1992. They decided to go, you know, international. I mean, they were a domestic company, and they decided to go international. So they said, you know, we're going to go to Russia. We're talking about 1991. That was the Soviet Union. I mean, Soviet Union collapsed in 1992 or, or 1991, you know, thereabouts. So you know, we went there. No, you know, Soviet Union times trying to find contracts, uh, Western Siberia. And finally, we landed in, we opened an an office in Moscow And we decided that we're going to go for the, uh, not for Russia itself, but, you know, for the satellite countries, you know, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan. So we signed two contracts, you know, in in Turkmenistan. And, I mean, we're talking about something really, really remote. You know, this was in the border with Afghanistan. At the time, there was the the war between the Russians and, and the Taliban. So we were in the middle of this uh, war, you know, the tanks and the planes, you know, flying over us, you know, and and we decided we're going to sign this contract, you know, right there in the middle of uh, this war going on. And well, you know, to make the the story short, basically, we drilled a couple of wells, exploration wells, really very close to the border with Afghanistan, Turkmenistan and Afghanistan. And we we found this huge, you know, gas field, which at the time, you know, I mean, to us, we didn't know that was this big, you know, and... uh, then with a second well, a third well, and we we really thought, you know, that this was going to be something important. And we were thinking about maybe, you know, 10 TCF, 20 TCF, you know, that's that's big. But uh, Turkmenistan, they have fields about 50 or 70 TCF, you know, they're a very large gas exporter. At the end of the day, this field today is the second or the third largest gas field in the world. Today managed by the, by the Chinese. All the gas is been exported to China, but... Um, to me, this was probably the, the most important achievement of my career. Going there, you know, Soviet Union, signing this contract, uh, middle of nowhere, you know, moving rigs. We, we used to move rigs, you know, from Argentina, you know, all the way from Argentina to the Caspian Sea. So that was, you know, to me, probably the, the biggest achievement of the time. Then I had other achievements, you know, as, as I move along my career with Repsol, you know, we drilled these wells in Venezuela. We signed this contract with the Venezuelan government and we found the Perla field. The Perla field is the largest gas field in Latin America. You know, it's about 20 TCF. It's a very large field in production right now, managed by ENI and, uh, and Repsol. So I, I guess those two are my highlights, you know, of my career. You know, I'm very proud of those two, two findings
0: And you should be. We know very few executives in this industry that can find similar experiences, say they might have one that they're particularly proud of handling uh, themselves. But this is extremely impressive, mainly because you started from Argentina, USA, then going to uh, what's now Russia, Turkmenistan. It's incredible. And I wanted to ask you, what was your role in both operations? What were you responsible for, per se? And what was your main challenge with this,
2: of course? Well, you know, at the time, you know, in the Russia adventure, I should say, I was the, the, the manager, the exploration manager for the team, and uh, I was based in, uh, in London at the time you know, we had an office in Moscow and I was in charge of all the operations and all the technical work and the responsible for the for the investments as well. And I was, I was quite young. I was about 30, 32, I think, 33 or something. So this was quite an adventure for me, life uh, learning experience, you know, uh, because, you know, we're talking about not only the business side of the, the, the problem, but there was, you know, a lot of cultural learning and understanding. These were people that, Literally, they, they never saw a foreigner. And then in the Pearl of Discovery, well, I was much older. I was the director for Latin America at the time. I was responsible for all the countries in Latin America. So I was responsible for Venezuela, the whole thing, you know. Responsibility for all the operations in exploration operations in, in Venezuela. When I, and all, all Latin America, So I said, you know, the different ages of my life are equally rewarding.
0: And impressive. We talked about Repsol just just now briefly, but this is how I met you. I'm very interested in why you moved from uh, Latin America to Europe. Uh, we met when you were handling the entire portfolio for North Africa and Middle East, as well as Europe, if I'm not mistaken huge portfolio Uh, especially at that time there were one too many things happening in those regions respectively I mean talking about Iran uh, Bulgaria all the way to I think Repsol was also in Algeria correct me if I'm wrong how did you move within Repsol and what was your role from one area to the other? What are the key learnings you got from from this Colossus?
2: Well, thank you, Chris. That's a very interesting question. It, yeah, sure. You know, I think it was, it was a journey. Repsol, they decided to make this acquisition in 1999. They bought uh, YPF. 1999, uh, Repsol landed in Argentina. Well, they landed in 1997, but uh, and I was there in Argentina in 1998 with them, and they decided to buy YPF. That was a... Uh, Quite quite a bold move, you know, $15 billion in cash, which at the time was a lot of money. Even today is a lot of money. And they bought, you know, 100% of the company. YPF at the time was, you know, quite a large company. They were producing, you know, 700,000 or 800,000 barrels of oil per day. You know, that that was quite a large company. And Repsol was not a company known by the EMP industry. They were known for the downstream. So I think both companies, they complement each other. They made a good merger. That's how I started with Repsol, you know, in, with them in, back in 1999. And um, the thing is that uh, i made my career along uh, the years. And about 2005, I was already a director and I was in charge of uh, Latin America, the whole uh, continent, from Mexico down to, to Argentina. By 2010, Repsol decided that I should be doing something else. And they moved me to Spain, to Madrid. And that's I think when we met. I moved to Spain in 2009. You know, they put me in charge of uh, North Africa and Europe first, and then it was North Africa, Europe, and Middle East. Uh, that was quite a large portfolio because Repsol was very, very active. Not now they are more quiet. You know, they are thinking about something else now. But uh, at the time, and also along with WPF, they were very, very active on the EMP world. And um, they had a very large, they were very aggressive, you know, from uh, acquisition and uh, drilling. And and they had a very large portfolio. They had blocks everywhere. You know, they had blocks in Middle East, uh, Europe, uh, North Africa. East Africa, West Africa. It was quite a large portfolio, you know, and I was managing different countries like Norway, for example, and, and Iraq, and and also you know North Africa, you know, Algeria, Libya. They had a very strong position in Algeria and Libya at the time. There was a war. it was uh, it was yeah. That was 2000. Well, I think mean, Libya was quite a difficult place to be and to manage as well. You know, Repsol had a very, very strong position. They were producing about 500,000 barrels out of Libya. So that was a very, uh, it's called, a field called al-Sharada, which I think is going back on stream, you know, this year. You know, it's been shut in for all this year after the war. You know, this was a, quite an interesting journey, you know, for me in Repsol. I left Repsol in 2014, you know, to go to Petrolas, you know. But we met, you're right, we met in back in Europe in 2010, yeah.
0: Exactly. I've got a lot of questions. I want to understand how you transitioned from this uh, big oil and gas giant uh, like Repsol. What led you to go all the way to Ecopetrol? Different system, right? Working, going from an IOC to an NOC. It's a whole different game. So what made you change your mind and, and career path, uh, if I may
2: ask? Yeah, you're right. Going from a private IOC, Repsol used to be the national oil company. So they had, you know, some cultural NOC thing, you know, inside somehow. But you're right, quite different uh, animals, you know, Repsol and, and Ecopatrol. But to me, the challenge with Ecopatrol was managing the whole company, the whole portfolio. In Repsol, you know, I was uh, director of Latin America, then I was director of North Africa, then I was, you know, in charge of Middle East. I, I was never in charge of the whole world. At the time, Ecopetrol, Patrol, they were thinking becoming an uh, international player. They had blocks in Angola, they had blocks in Gulf of Mexico, they still have a very large office here in Houston. They were managing a very large budget. When I landed in, uh, in Patrol, my budget was $1.4 billion. You know, that's what they gave me to explore. Yeah, it was a lot of money. When I was in Repsol, I was managing about uh, $500 million, uh, $400 million. That was what I had every year, you know, as my budget. And when they called me, they said, you're going to have $1.5 billion. And I said, whoa, that, that's a lot of money, you know, to do things. You know, to me, it was in the same path. You know, there were different animals, for sure. You know, then I found out that very different animals. But to me, it was a, a step forward, managing a larger budget. Also, they didn't have a, an exploration department. Surprisingly, they, they they had exploration and production all together on the one person. So they said, you know, we're going to have a new department. You're going to be the vice president of exploration and, and new ventures. Uh, you're going to have all this money and you're going to be able to do international things. And, you know, fine. That sounds wonderful. Of course, you know, being a national oil company, things are much more difficult, you know, it's not the same than in a private uh, entity, you know, the decisions are more political than, as I said, you know, more bureaucratic, it's a completely different thing. But the problem was with Equipatrol, essentially the uh, the collapse of the price. I moved in September of 2014 and, and the price collapse. You know, uh, you know, I think it was January 2015. The problem was essentially the collapse of the price, the first collapse of the price. Yeah, the Arabs you know did the first move in 2015 this the same thing that they did this year they did it back in 2015 then of course the immediate reaction was okay now you don't have the budget so my budget you know for 1.4 billion went down to I think 300 million or something you know was
0: yeah, everyone butchered their budgets at hear...
2: no of course sure and exploration is the the, the first victim you know of all this crisis so basically that that was the issue there you know tough times you know 15 16 were really tough times Price was really low. Yeah, that was that,
0: yeah. But Maxi, then you moved. You made a very bold move. For me, it makes a lot... Of- another one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Another, another bold move.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But that's that leadership, right? You got to be prone a bit to risk, and you need to uh, try everything to understand the industry completely. Otherwise, there's no way for you to to gain expertise. I want to ask about Selva. It's very straightforward to me why you wanted to go into building an independent player, an independent oil and gas company in Colombia. But I want to hear from you more. Your experience, let's say, it's very difficult. What about raising funding in a very difficult situation? Just like today, what did you learn? What would you like to share with us from this part of your journey? That for me is the most challenging, perhaps.
2: No, indeed. It is the most challenging thing is to start your own company. I'm sure you know a lot of that, all that. You've been very successful yourself. Thank you, Max. Yeah, you're right. I've been working all these years for, you know, large companies, corporations, uh, managing very large uh, groups of, uh, you know, very talented people, you know, in Lake Patrol. I mean, I had a team of about 600 persons, you know, in Repsol, I had about 150 professionals, you know, to manage. I was at a point in my career where I said, you know, I I think I need a change. You know, I have enough network and experience to do this myself. I found a a group of investors, you know, they wanted to to do this in in Colombia. And and you know that Colombia is well known for startups, many companies. They succeeded, many others failed, but uh, Colombia is very well known for startups. That was basically what I what I decided to do. You know, I you know said, well, you know, maybe it's the time to change. I have uh, enough experience, networking, and and if I have funding, you know, I can do this. But as you said, it's very challenging. You need a lot of luck. It's not only funding and, uh, and networking. You you need. I had the fortune to have a very talented team. We were about ten of us. We did a lot of work, you know, for two years, and then um, again the price collapsing, uh, you know, by the you know, the beginning of this year. So that's when I decided to discontinue the effort with Selva because uh, in this environment, there's no way that, uh, that you can make uh, these things profitable. I
0: of course, I understand this is kind of in the past, but I, are you sure that you will never touch upon that topic uh, and going towards this Building my own company, oil and gas company, right? Is it just a thing that pasado pisado, or would we see you moving towards that direction again in the future?
2: Very interesting question. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I started Plata uh, with Carlos, you know, in uh, November last year. Plata is a different thing. You know, Plata is more an uh, advisory consulting uh, guidance, uh, you know, idea. It's, no, it's not an EMP company, but um, we might, you know, with Plata take the turn and start uh, looking for for royalties instead of uh, payments. Uh, And and we are talking, you know, to investors. I mean, as a matter of fact, we're working with investors now offering, uh, as I said, advisory work and uh, evaluations and these kind of things. And um, so we are discussing with them, you know, other or not being just consultants, you know, being something else. So. I don't know. This is a difficult time for the oil industry. I'm not willing to take a lot of risks right now. The oil being at 37, whatever it is today. Most of the projects in Latin America at 37, they are you know, under the water. They are not commercial. Uh, subcommercial or marginal. So if, let's say, looking back to Selva, with Selva, I made three offers for so three, three different fields. And uh, I was in the middle of negotiation of buying these fields when the price collapsed. And I had to discontinue the negotiations. But if I look back on the numbers and the profits Today, I will not be sitting here, probably be in jail, you know, because all the three fields that I made offers, they are shutting, they are not producing because of the price. The current owner and operator, they decided to shut in the fields because they were losing money. You had to borrow money, you, you buy a field, then you end up uh, with a big debt and producing zero. It's a big risk. And I think volatility right now and prices are not something that you can count on. So I will... Be careful how I make my, my move, my next move. And also I'm in a, in a point of my career that, uh, you know, I don't want to take a lot of risks. That That's the other thing, you know.
0: Exactly. Currently, as you as you also mentioned, the times I mean the times are very difficult for independents and juniors. Something that we see a lot. So first we see the there's a shift, let's say, in interest from the countries, right? From the governments. They yes. they keep asking to meet and work with more juniors, more independents. Mm-hmm. However, the appetite for funding is increasing, of course, from the independence part because of this demand through the governments, but is there money here on, on the plate? And and I think the answer is not as much. So how would you advise these independents and juniors to move towards getting this, this funding? Is there anything? Because you work with tons of them, right? So what would you advise them if they could be careful of something or something that's... Uh, should be looking into right now what would that be
2: i think you're right i think funding is, uh, is very scarce right now i think uh, you know investors are not looking at the energy industry or the oil and gas industry as something that is profitable for example the private equity story that used to be so strong you know in the last 10 years 20 years you know uh, Latin America, Colombia is a very good example. You know, a lot of private equities investing in in Colombia and Latin America and Peru, you know, that story is gone. If you go to a private equity today and you ask for money for Latin America, they will laugh. You know, so I think the appetite for EMP and taking risks in Latin America is almost zero. Today, there are very few groups. You know, trying to be countercyclical, lucky enough to be working with one of them. But I can say that there are very few groups of people, you know, trying to be countercyclical and and trying to acquire cheap production. Because right now, of course, you know, you can buy fields uh, for nothing. I don't know if you read the story in Ecuador, uh, this company, New Stratos, which is a ex-Pacific Rubiales, ex-Colombian company. They decided to buy this field from Repsol. That was last week. They're going to pay $5 million, you know, for the field, which is, you know, almost nothing. And they're going to make, I mean, that's what they announced. They're going to make, you know, two different two, two installments, you know. So, you know, it's, it's like getting, you know, a field for free, almost for free the problem is that uh, today the ecuadorian government announced that uh, they don't qualify and they're not going to accept the transaction that's the other problem governments they are not willing also to take the risks of uh, getting these these junior companies into the country if they don't prove that they have the financial capacity or the technical capacity I mean, the landscape is, is really difficult today for the juniors. I don't think there is enough funding and I don't think that the governments, they are, you know, attracted to them anymore. Colombia is one example. I mean, the ANH many times in the last year said that uh, they are not willing to work with juniors. You know, they want uh, established establish companies established companies that don't want to work in Latin America. So, you know, it's it's like a catch-22, like a circle. So my guess is that, you know, there's going to be a lack of investing and lack of funding for, for the countries, and for the activity. And that's what we're seeing. Basically, yeah, we're seeing a few wells, we're seeing no seismic. I mean, that's the reality today. Yeah.
1: Exactly. This is a really good point because, uh, for example, last week we had our African regional and we had a debate exactly that was asking for... Uh, uh, governments in general to really understand that in terms of efforts to continue developing the industry, they kind of need to meet the private sector uh, midway because if it's for only one of the sides and usually the private sector to really have all the to take all the risks alone, this is going to be a massive issue moving forward, especially within the next two years. So indeed, we see that um, it would be good uh, for some NOCs, some agencies to understand that they, they will need to be a bit more hybrid, a bit more flexible flexible and it goes exactly towards what you just said but i want to take you back to latam uh, because you were also part of our regional and thank you for that it was an extremely successful event
2: no thank you guys yeah it was a a very good experience for me too thank
1: you nice lovely to see you there and uh we want to focus a lot on this area also moving forward because we do work with a few countries there for example brazil or Peru, or even Argentina. Soon we will announce a few other things, but for example, today we went up and we see on LinkedIn that Suriname is expecting to earn around $60 billion from offshore discoveries, so not everything is completely dead or it doesn't seem like it. What are your thoughts in terms of the potential of, of those countries?
2: Uh, you know, you're right, Madalena. I think Latin America has a lot of potential. In, in a nutshell, I think uh, has a lot of potential and has a lot of problems with the administrations and the governments. You know, I think it's been a historical disaster, you know, for Latin America. But one of the topics that I... Discuss on your convention, your, your venue, was that. You know, Latin America having 18% or 19% of the reserves and having 7% of the production. Basically, if you put this in a ratio, uh, Latin America has something like 144 years worth of production. Of course, there's the talk of the 324 billion barrels of Latin America, which 300 billion barrels are in Venezuela. If we only Discuss reserves. Latin America has doubled the reserves of Middle East. I think the number of three hundred billion in Venezuela is a bit not real. I think it's a bit accelerated. I think uh, you know. I think it's not three hundred. It, it could be a hundred billion barrels. But still, Middle East, they have something like uh, 70 billion barrels. So still, Latin America is going to be first in reserves in the, in, in the world. And the production is very low. The problem with, uh, with Latin America, to me, has been the administrations. Venezuela is a very clear example of that, you know, the Unfortunately, losing all the production. But then you have success stories. I think uh, Guyana and Suriname, you just mentioned those two countries. I've uh, been part of this adventure and this journey for this country as well. I started working in, in Guyana in 2000, 2001. I drilled my the first uh, reporter while in Suriname in 2007, I think, called, called West Appear. So, you know, I know those countries very well, and I'm very happy that they are doing, you know, what they're doing. And, and, and I think Guyana, Suriname, they have a success story to tell. The other good example is Mexico, of course. Uh, Mexico, with their big round uh, in 2016 and 17. And they have attracted a lot of international companies, uh, you know, BHP, Repsol, Petronas, Shell, everybody's there. And they're making very interesting material discoveries. The highlights for Latin America today are, you know, obviously Brazil, uh, Guyana, and Mexico. I think those are the three countries. I think an important point here is that the three countries are making discoveries in the deep water, you know, in the offshore. That's a very important thing because not a lot of activity is going on in the world in the offshore. Most of the offshore activity is being shut down because of the prices. But Latin America is pushing strong and drilling and, and really wells. And, and Brazil is a good example. They had a very good success, you know, with the bid rounds, the amp and and Petrobras, you know, both. Uh, signing these new contracts, you know, the PSCs, the new contract. So, you know, I think Brazil is a success story. I mean, they have very large volumes of uh, resources and reserves. Production is going up, you know, in the deep water. So that that's a very successful story. Then you have Guyana and Suriname, and Guyana with the Exxon discoveries. Exxon has 18 successful wells in a row. That is a very impressive number for Guyana. And Suriname, they have three. We're talking about probably, yeah, nine, 10 billion barrels, you know, induced. These two countries, that they had nothing. Ten years ago, they had zero, nothing. And they were not even in the radar of most of the companies in the world. So right now, there are stars, you know, hotspots. So, you know, I think Latin America has a promising future. To me, the problem is, and then, you know, Vaca Muerta. Vaca Muerta is another place that is very attractive for investments. But the problem to me are the administrations, you know. Unfortunately, that's the case for Latin America.
1: Exactly. Now but let me pick up exactly on that the, the administration's part. So how agencies are structured. I want to know because what would be the advice to overall Latin American agencies that are regulating so the oil and gas industry and how can we also persuade some of them to be more open to some risks that then will lead you to embrace smaller ENP players, which is exactly the trend that we were mentioning before, because there are a few examples. We know Um, for example, of Peru, that is willing to look into smaller ones, not just the usual suspects, the big IOCs. So we know some of them are willing to look into this direction, but indeed this is not the, it's kind of the exception of the rule. So how could we change that? And how can we explain the agencies that we could see some potential also opening the arms uh, to these possibilities?
2: No, Madalena, you're right. I think Carlos gave a talk and there was a symposium about uh, two weeks ago and my, my partner's Carlos Garivaldi, he gave a talk about uh, about uh
1: uh-huh. exactly
2: Latin America and the and the reserves. And the message there was, you know, if you don't do something transformation it, energy matrix is going to change and you're going to be stranded with a a huge volume of reserves, non-commercial reserves. To me, I think the agencies, they need to rethink their strategies. They need to start thinking that uh, the energy of the future is not going to be the oil and gas. It's going to be something else. Latin America is moving really slow on the transformation, as you know, but the world is picking up the transformation slowly and is moving into that direction, you know, changing the energy matrix. If they countries, they don't realize that they need to change somehow their regulatory frameworks and their terms. They're going to end up with massive volumes of reserves, you know, just stranded in the ground. Carlos says this, uh, this famous phrase that uh, the stone age didn't end because of lack of stones. That is something that is very true. You <laughs> yeah. know, uh, You know, I mean, the, the oil and gas age is not going to end because of lack of oil. So it's going to end because uh, there's something else better than it's going to replace it. You know, it could be hydrogen, it could be whatever yeah and it's slow I agree it's slow but uh, Latin America you know as I said before has massive reserves 300 million barrels you know maybe 200 million barrels whatever but that that's you know as I said larger than what they have in Middle East as, as P1 and P2 reserves so I think it's interesting to note that uh, the agencies are to me you know living in the past. They are expecting that the the companies are going to, you know, make a line, you know, to invest in the countries. And that is not going to happen. I mean, they're maybe going to make a line in Guyana, maybe going to make a line in Suriname. Uh, in Brazil, they were making a line. You know, they were paying massive amounts of money for to, to sign these contracts. Now they're learning the hard way that they paid too much. You know, they're probably going to lose their shirts, you know, in Brazil. I think the agencies, they need to change and they need to start thinking uh, about the future. They need to start attracting investors, which are very... Few and very timid, you know, so to me, the the, the message will be they they need to rethink their strategies. And of course, that's very difficult because, uh, you know, it's tied to politics and it's tied to, you know, strategic thinking of each one of the countries and some kind of uh, nationalism, uh, you know, uh, wrongly understood nationalism. They need to rethink their strategies to me.
1: This is more an advice on the part of the agencies per se, but is there... Looking at the overall industry, not just institutional parts, so the governmental side that is looking for investment to just continue flowing as before, which is not going to happen, most likely. Looking at the industry in general and knowing that the audience of this podcast will include pretty much people from all sectors, from upstream to downstream, uh, everything in between, governments. What are the most general lines that you would share with oil and gas and energy experience, and what would be like the main advice to give to um, to them at the moment?
2: I think oil and gas is going to be the source of energy for a long time, at least for 20, 30 years. You know, at least all the trends uh, show. You know that the energy matrix is going to be at least 80 percent or. Like some of them, they show more. Oil and gas, um, the rest is going to be something else. Uh, renewables, maybe. Let me point out here that uh, that China is moving in a complete different direction. China is increasing the use of coal uh, since 2010, 2013. You know, they have almost double the the use of of coal, so they they are moving in the opposite direction that the world is moving. Nevertheless, I think the Western world is moving in a, in, a, in a direction that they want clean energy, they want a different uh, you know energy matrix, and, and I think the companies or the the countries they need to think you know as the oil and gas as something that it needs to be sustainable, and they need to get into cleaner energy through time, famous transformation of the energy sector. But I think. Oil and gas is going to be here with us for many, many years, you know, 20, 30 years at least. So basically, I think the countries and the companies, they need to think their strategies and and make this industry profitable again and, and make it clean and profitable. I think the pandemic right now is uh, giving us a, a lesson, and uh, you know people are consuming less. And I think we can live in a world, and we we can consume less, and we can uh, use uh, less energy. The idea at the at the end is that uh, you know we don't we don't need to use as much energy as we used before. But still, we need to make this this industry profitable again. I think it's a mistake. You know, what is happening in the world, you know, basically trashing the oil industry because, uh, you know, they are not environmentally friendly and all this. I think uh, at the end of the day, most of the economic activity of the world is supported by, by, you know, the oil and gas industry and the energy that is provided by the oil and gas and the fossil fuels. So I think there's a combination of things here, you know, it's, it's a mix of things. We, we are sort of in a crossroad now, you know, as a civilization or whatever. But uh, I think there are a number of things that this pandemic or this slowing down for this year or two years, I don't know, is going to take us thinking, you know, how we want to, you know, shape up the, the future.
0: I have a comment to make here uh, because I know that you are uh, a Latino. I am, yes. Well, European, no. American, Latino. <laughs> no, I
2: am a Latino, 100%. I was born in the U.S., but I am a Latino.
0: I know, I know, uh, and I know you really care about the the region. This is why you're you're going back. Uh, and I know I've, we've been discussing, like Max, there is this opportunity here in whatever country we we mentioned at that point that we work with. And you say, no, look, Chrisa, we really want to. I really want to focus uh, in this region because you know this is where my heart is. And I do. I do respect it and I understand it. I wanted to ask you, in regards to local content, because we're very close to wrap the the podcast, what would you say that the the region is missing? And and what would it be good if they move towards a specific direction? I know you were mentioning one day about the talent and the talent pool that uh, the region has. So, What are your thoughts about
2: this? Yes. So, as you said, you know, Latin America is, is very dear to me. That's the reason I've been spending most of my efforts, you know, uh, and right now, you know, with Plata as well, you know, we are concentrating on, on Latin America. As I said before, I said Latin America has a lot of great potential, has a lot of resources. And uh, talking about resources, I think has a lot of talents as well. You know, I think uh, Latin America has a lot of great schools, you know, great schools in, in Brazil, in Argentina, in Colombia, uh, in Mexico lots of talented, you know, young people and, and lots of women, you know, joining the industry. And unfortunately, you know, these are tough times, you know, and these this, this, this young talents, they are not finding their position, which is a shame is that uh, the industry has this, uh, you know, bad publicity or, you know, bad perception. And some, some of the young folks, you know, they think that uh, doing oil and gas is, is the wrong thing to do. Yeah, I have a daughter who, you know, which is 25, is just, you know, finish uh, school and, uh, you know, and I have this conversation with her, you know, she just finished economics. And, and I have this conversation with her many, many times, you know, and, and the perception of the, the young, younger generation is that the oil and gas is a thing of the past something that is hurting the environment is something that uh, has a very bad connotation in general. And I think in some respects, this is our fault. The only guys, I think we didn't care enough about the environment or didn't work, uh, you know, having a better image of the oil industry. And I think we're paying the price. But I think the oil industry, in my view, of course, is, is not hurting the environment. Through my whole journey, we've been very, very careful, you know, how we manage operations and how we are socially responsible. And I think we just got a bunch of bad press. That's all. uh, We didn't take the time to correct that image or that impression. So my advice to the younger generation is that uh, look at the oil industry as something you know for the future. But as I, as I just said, I think the oil and gas is here to stay, at least for the next twenty-five, thirty years. You know, and you can make a career out of that. You are seeing a lot of people, you know, uh, switching careers or moving, you know, somewhere else. Uh, right now, we're going through a very slow period and a slump, you know. But I think we're gonna we're gonna recover from this, and I think the price is gonna go up uh, next year as soon as we recover from the from the. Health crisis, so we are going, going to go up 60, 70. Uh, we're going to have a strong industry again. And I think there's careers to have, money to be made, uh, you know, a lot of things, you know, a lot of services that this industry has. And, and as I said before, you know, the, I'm looking at a graph here. In you know, the next 30 years, renewables, electricity, and nuclear is going to be only 10% the next 30 years. And, and the rest is going to be, unfortunately, coal. Coal is going to be about 30%, 40%. You know, the other 60 is going to be oil and gas. Gas, of course, being taking a very a stronger position, being a being a cleaner energy, more environmentally friendly. So oil is going to go, you know, low, but but still, oil and gas is going to be the next 30 years. Um, it's going to be 60% of the energy matrix. I think populations and cities and, and, and middle class are going to keep growing. And I think uh, energy is in the essence of, uh, is in the cornerstone of any any uh, growth. I think the younger young generations need to understand that they have a place and they have a niche. Uh, and also women, you know, women, they also... Can, can join the forces and and they are joining the forces. They have been very proactive. So that that's my thought. You know, I think uh, I think there is this all this wrong perception of uh, the oil and gas industry, unfortunately.
0: No, we we completely understand. You know, and it doesn't go from people need to understand that. You know, it cannot change from one day to the next. There is infrastructure. Uh, there are contracts there's there's so much i mean let's not think only about Europe and the u s and all and and Australia or uh, generally the very developed countries, but there's also Africa some uh poorer countries uh, they depend on oil so much that they cannot just switch their their matrices and everything. It's a very powerful message max and, and honestly, I couldn't find a better way to kind of conclude our conversation for today. I don't know how to thank you for agreeing to, you know, uh, do this podcast with us. I know you're always available, but uh, having like hearing, having you here and then and, and listening to your experience and your thoughts, uh, it's been, it's been wonderful and extremely useful, uh, I'm sure to the audience as well, not just us.
2: No, thank you, girls, for for the opportunity and, um, you know, always uh, available to you guys. And, um, you know, thank you for giving me this, this platform, you know, to, to talk and discuss ideas. And you, you're welcome. I think, uh, you know, this has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you, Matt.
0: Indeed. And it's something we're going to elaborate more on, uh, let's say, another appointment we have in January together with Carlos to talk more about Plata and, and have. More holistic dialogue, all four of us. So I'm renewing this appointment for for January.
2: Sure, it it, it, it will be our pleasure, of course. Sure, you know any any I'm
0: booking you in. I'm booking you in uh, as my birthday gift. I'll, I'll put it on the calendar. <laughs> it's in the
1: agenda. Perfect.
2: No, thank, thank thank you guys. Thank you guys. Have a have a good day.
1: Amazing. Max, thank you so much. (laughs) This was great as always.